Welcome to the Kings and Queens podcast with your host, Johnny Langton. Upon his return to English shores to overthrow his cousin and claim the crown, a chronicler observed, had the Lord Jesus Christ arrived, he couldn't have been greeted with more pleasure from the citizens. The manner of his ascent not only consumed the king with almighty guilt for the rest of his life, but accusations of his illegitimacy completely dominated his reign. So deep was the rift, so potent was the suspicion, and so rampant was the opportunism, that it served as a precursor for the violent theatre of the War of the Roses. This is Henry IV. Henry was born in Bolingbroke, Lincolnshire, the place from which he took his name, in April 1367. He was the son of John of Gaunt and Blanche of Lancaster, grandson of King Edward III and first cousin of the future King Richard II. He was the heir to the richest estate in England, the Duchy of Lancaster. He was not expected to be king, as his father was the younger brother of the Black Prince, Richard's father. Henry was cultured, speaking fluent Latin, French and English. No contemporary portraits of him survive, but he was stocky and vigorous. From a young age, Henry was a man of action, excelling in blood sports and jousting. So good a jouster, in fact, that he entered tournaments at just 14. No one in English history had ever ascended at such a young age, not even his titanic uncle, the Black Prince. This was in sharp contrast to his refined cousin Richard, who preferred to watch instead of participate. They were born just three months apart, with no other male relative of their generation, their rivalry was bitter and lifelong. At just ten years old, the lives of the cousins would be dramatically altered when Richard became king in 1377, upon the death of his grandfather, Edward III. With England in the hands of a boy, chaos ensued. The vengeful French took advantage and represented an imminent and perilous threat to the livelihoods of all citizens with invasion. Taxes spiked and the people grew resentful. The peasant revolt quickly consumed London. While Richard was safe locked in the tower, 14-year-old Henry was abandoned. Luckily, he had protection from one man who stashed him in a cupboard. To capture the son of the archenemy, John of Gaunt, would have been disastrous for Henry. Luckily, the crisis subdued. Five years later, in 1386, misrule had prompted a challenge to the authority of the 19-year-old king. Richard's brooding cousin was a natural antagonist. Although he joined the group, called the Lord's Appellant, he was against removing Richard entirely. When the Lord's Appellant failed, he was found to be a chief colluder, along with his father, John of Gaunt, a staunch Ricardian. By the 1390s, Richard was slowly becoming a tyrant. Perhaps not coincidentally, Henry decided to go on crusade in 1392. He fought alongside the Teutonic Knights in Lithuania 
a place that was not yet Christian. Although they achieved little, just in going, Henry was able to enhance his chivalric reputation. The following year, in 1393, he visited Jerusalem for a pilgrimage in what would have been the envy of his many predecessors. When he returned to England as a chivalric warrior, natural comparisons would have been made with his increasingly volatile and despotic cousin, the king. Henry was everything Richard wasn't. Perhaps it was here when the king began to take the threat of his cousin seriously. In 1397, Richard performed the great scourge of his enemies with frightening efficiency. When three of the Lord's Appellant were imprisoned or executed, two were left. Henry and his friend Thomas Mowbray. Suspicion and angst soon ruined their friendship. When Mowbray expressed his concerns about the king, Henry told his father, John of Gaunt, who then told Richard. It was, however, Mowbray's word against Henry's. The matter would be resolved through combat. However, Richard the Narcissist stopped the duel seconds before the action and exiled them both. When John of Gaunt died, Richard seized Henry's inheritance, the Duchy of Lancaster. Henry was told if he ever returned, he would be hanged and beheaded. His old rival was finally vanquished, or so he thought. When Richard travelled to Ireland to quell revolt, he took the army and his loyalists with him. His ego had made him complacent. Henry took his chance. He landed in Yorkshire with a force of just 100 men in the hope of garnering support. He had no reason to worry. Beleaguered nobles flocked to his banner, including the Earl of Northumberland, Henry Percy, and his son, nicknamed Hotspur, with the supposed aim of reclaiming his inheritance, the Duchy of Lancaster. At some point, Henry's ambition grew significantly. When Richard returned, he found a force of renegades numbering 100,000. His support had melted away. He locked himself in the fortress of Conway Castle. Richard began to negotiate with the Earl of Northumberland. With the promise that his crown would be protected, Richard was coaxed out of Conway. He was duped. He was ambushed and taken prisoner in Flint Castle. There, he was persuaded to abdicate. When Edward II was convinced to abdicate, he did so safe in the knowledge that the crown would pass to his son, Edward III. Richard was expected to abdicate in favour of his arch-enemy. With no army marching to free him, Richard had little choice. He was deposed, and his subjects absolved of their allegiance. He was then imprisoned at Pontefract Castle. Henry now had the arduous task of convincing the nation that he was the rightful heir and should be king. But there is a problem. There was another cousin. Edmund was the grandson of Lionel, an elder brother of Henry's father, John of Gaunt. However, Edmund was the son of Lionel's daughter. The legitimacy of a royal born of a royal female was a grey area. The daughter of Henry I, Matilda, had a similar problem. To try and avoid contention, 
Henry decided to claim the crown not as a grandson of Edward III, but as a descendant of a son of Henry III through his own mother. This gave him a double claim through his father and his mother. He was also keen not to be labelled a usurper. With Richard deposed, he constructed a narrative that he would take the reins of a vacant throne to save the nation from anarchy. It worked in claiming the crown, but questions over his legitimacy and the consequences of such would plague his reign. On the 13th of October 1399, he was crowned king. He was given a vial of oil, ostensibly belonging to St. Thomas Becket. The oil would wash away his sins, yet his greatest crime was yet to be committed. For many, this coronation did little to confirm his legitimacy. King Charles VI of France was one of many who refused to recognise him. Nevertheless, in just 12 weeks, Henry had gone from being an exiled, landless noble to the King of England. It was a phenomenal achievement, reminiscent of William the Conqueror. In 1400, as resentment grew, a plot called the Epiphany Rising was discovered. The rebels, who did not fare well from the transition of power, wanted to kill the new king and restore Richard to the throne. It failed, but it was a stark warning. While alive, Richard's presence tore at the continuity and security of the state. Henry had to act. Richard had to be done away with. In an effort not to leave any marks on the body, to try to convince the nation that he had died of natural causes, Richard was starved to death. To drive the point home, he was displayed at St. Paul's in an effort to prevent future conspiracies. The conquest was complete. With whispers of Henry's legitimacy likely to continue, he needed to accommodate for those who were loyal to him. This included appeasing the powerful House of Commons. They not only provided money for the great estates and offices, but now the Commons demanded accounts. This had previously not been tolerated by the Crown, but now Henry was vulnerable. He had little choice but to grant this unprecedented power and take a hit to royal prerogative. Henry had to deal with the Lollards, a sect who regularly criticised the Roman Catholic Church. The statute de heretico comborendo made it legal to take anyone convicted of heresy and burn them at the stake. For the first time, the English would be burned for their beliefs. Elsewhere, with the crown weak, England's neighbours took advantage. By 1400, Anglo-Irish lords had assimilated with the Irish population. English control was limited to the Pale, the fortified lands surrounding Dublin. Beyond the Pale, English control withered away as royal fortresses fell to the natives. In the north, Scotland renewed their alliance with France and made numerous incursions on the border. The king's allies, Northumberland, and his son, Hotspur, were tasked with subduing the rampant Scots. The royal treasury was depleted, however. Northumberland was expected to pay for the campaign. The English were victorious, 
Northumberland was keen to ransom their prisoners back to Scotland to repay his own debt. Henry refused, preferring to have long-term prisoners to secure peace. Northumberland was rattled, but there was no time to quarrel. The Scots' Celtic brethren in the West were about to rise. Wales had a new leader. Owen Glendower was one of the richest landowners in Wales. He was also a model representative of the English. He was educated in London and had even fought on campaign for Richard. In 1399, Glendower had a grievance over a land dispute with the Baron Grey of Ruthen. Parliament ignored this grievance. An angry Glendower returned to Wales, whose citizens were still oppressed and still simmering. They could still not own property or hold office in the English counties of Wales. In his mountain retreat on the 16th of September 1400, a small group pronounced Glendower the Prince of Wales. They then mobilised. The first target was Ruthen. They raided and they destroyed. They then moved from town to town, laying waste. Northumberland and Hotspur, fresh from victories in Scotland, were drafted into North Wales to deal with the rebellion, a terrain of which they knew nothing. Victory would not be repeated. The Welsh began to win. Avoiding pitched battles, they resorted to guerrilla tactics to defeat the superior force of the English. But the English could not overwhelm the Welsh. They were broke. Northumberland had demanded £20,000 to clear his debt after Scotland. Even that was beyond the Exchequer. Parliament complained angrily of the costs of a royal household, of excessive annuities and taxes misspent. This left the Welsh with a golden opportunity. As Glendower's rebellion spread through North Wales, students and workmen in England returned to their homeland to join the rebellion. It would soon engulf the entire country. A chronicler describes the rebels. They sorely harried with fire and sword the English who dwelt in those parts. The English utterly laid waste, ravaging them with fire, famine and sword, leaving a desert in their wake carrying a thousand small children back to England as their servants. But the Welsh would need help if they were to achieve their long-term aims of independence. They were about to get it, as illegitimacy began to haunt Henry once more. In 1402, Glendower received the support of Edmund, Earl of March, the claimant to the English throne, the greatest threat to Henry. In 1403, the two were joined by a new defector. Embittered by their mounting debt and shunned from the king's council, the family that had done more to get Henry the throne than any other, the Percys, Northumberland, and his son Hotspur joined the rebellion and united with their recent enemy. On the 10th of July, 1403, Hotspur published his manifesto. Henry had seized the crown illegally. They had been conned into thinking Henry only wanted to reclaim the Duchy of Lancaster, not the whole kingdom. He now supported the claim 
of Edmund. Hotspur mustered a force in Chester and rode south to meet the forces of Glendower. When he reached Shrewsbury en route, his army was barred from entering by the king's son, Prince Henry. Two miles outside the town, they made camp. The royal forces had quickly mobilised. On the 21st of July, 1403, before Glendower could react to aid his new ally, the Battle of Shrewsbury commenced. For the first time, both sides wielded the deadly longbow and were evenly matched. A bloodbath was guaranteed. As the Royal Vanguard approached, they were cut to pieces. According to Thomas Walsingham, the King's men fell as fast as autumn leaves. But Hotspur's men were running out of arrows. They tried desperately to reclaim them from the corpses of their victims. The King ordered the advance and threw himself into battle. Hotspur reacted by mustering his cavalry and assembling a hit squad to kill the King. Henry was pulled to safety. The spot where he had stood was flattened minutes later by the rampant horses. Prince Henry took an arrow to the face, but continued to fight. The cavalry was soon overwhelmed. When Hotspur lifted his visor to catch his breath, he was shot clean and was dead. The royal army was victorious. It was described by the chronicler Brute as the heaviest and sorest battle ever to take place in England. It was horrible to hear the groans of the wounded who entered their lives miserably beneath the hooves of the horses. The threat from Hotspur was ended. His father, Northumberland, who had associated with the rebellion but played no active part, was pardoned. The defeat of Hotspur played little part, however, in quelling the Welsh. By 1404, they had control of the majority of Wales, but they didn't capture the castles. In those fortresses, terrified English immigrants sheltered. They wouldn't be safe for long. In 1404, Glendower took the castles of Harlech and Aberystwyth. Glendower had become a formidable, inspirational leader Marshalling the legend of King Arthur, he flew the flag of the Golden Dragon. In Harlech, he was crowned Prince of Wales. He began to establish a Welsh state. They held their own parliament and planned the establishment of two universities. They also began to utilise foreign support. In 1405, the French sent a contingent force. They also allied with the Avignon Papacy. They were attempting to break from the English Church and ally with the rival Pope. Their Archbishopric would be St. David's. Then, Glendower, Edmund and Northumberland agreed to the tripartite indenture. This meant partitioning the country. Northumberland would rule the north of England Edmund would rule the south, and Glendower would rule Wales. But first, they would oust the king. Henry was in deep trouble. 
Henry would face more defection. The Archbishop of York, Richard Le Scrope, began to criticise the king from the pulpit. Almost all those capable of bearing arms joined his rebellion. 8,000 men. But, instead of a pitched battle, Scrope negotiated with the king. He disbanded his army in exchange for a truce. Like Richard, he had placed far too much trust in Henry. He was immediately arrested. Henry travelled up north solely for the purpose of watching the trial of the dissident. Scrope was found guilty of treason and was executed. Europe winced. While Henry II's responsibility for the murder of Thomas Becket was sketchy, the murder of Scrope, the Archbishop of York, was not. To execute an archbishop was among the gravest of crimes in Christendom. But such was the fragility of the Western Schism, the rivalry between the two popes. He was not excommunicated. Such was Rome's need for English support. Nevertheless, Henry had crushed another rebellion. More good news in Wales for Henry. The rebels were suffering. The king now had the money to chip away at the Welsh resistance. Prince Henry took the lead, setting up economic blockades to drain the dissidents. Much like the tactics of Edward Longshanks a hundred years before, the French contingent left. The rejuvenated English took their cannons and reclaimed Aberystwyth and Harlech. Edmund was in command of the rebels. After an eight-month siege, Harlech fell, and Edmund went with it. The greatest contender for Henry's crown was dead. Glendower's family was captured. Glendower himself vanished. He was never captured and drifted into legend. The fervent Welsh believed that a man of Arthur's ilk could not die like a mere mortal. He did, however, leave a defeated, rancorous Wales at the mercy of their oppressors. When the dust settled, heavy fines were given to districts who had failed to hold court during the rebellions. Draconian laws remained. Their future was bleak. As William Rees concludes, for a century, a millstone of debt hung around the necks of the Welsh people. Henry had one more rebel to deal with. When Scrope negotiated with the king, Northumberland had run for the Scottish border. Now, in 1408, he would muster one last invasion force. At Bramham Moor, the 66-year-old Earl met the superior royal army. They were soundly defeated. The head of Northumberland was carried in mock procession all the way to London. He was quartered and displayed across the four corners of the country. Henry had eliminated his final threat. For nearly a decade, Henry's reign was engrossed by rebellion. It was over, but he had no opportunity to enjoy the peace. From 1406, his health had started to decline rapidly. He had had regular strokes and epileptic fits. He also had a pervasive skin disease. It could have been leprosy or maybe syphilis. Regardless, he became increasingly disabled. He ceased riding and then walking. He suffered from a festering of the flesh, 
dehydration of the eyes, and rupture of his internal organs. The nasty illness was seen by many as a punishment from God for his execution of an archbishop. In his final years, he rarely left London, visiting only Canterbury to visit Thomas Becket's shrine, perhaps to repent. The king's incapacitation left a power struggle. A powerful faction led by Prince Henry dismissed the king's favourite and chancellor. This left a huge rift between father and son. In 1410 and 1411, the king was forced to ward off attempts to force his abdication in favour of his son. When the prince was confronted by the ailing king, he gave him a dagger and said, My life is not worthy, you should take it, or I am innocent. In 1413, while praying, the king had a seizure. He died at the age of 47. It had been Henry's dream to die in Jerusalem. It was achieved. Though he didn't die in the Middle East, he had to settle for the Jerusalem chamber in Westminster Abbey. Henry was buried not in the place he died, requesting instead to be buried at Canterbury Cathedral alongside St. Thomas Becket. Henry IV benefited and suffered from circumstance. He won the crown and defeated all of his enemies, but he left behind a country woefully in debt and dependent on the mercy and goodwill of its own magnates, changing the political landscape forever. When he died, he was a mental and physical wreck, racked with guilt and tormented by his own success. Although he ensured a stable succession for his son, his capture of the crown and the killing of his predecessor meant the foundations of anarchy were laid, as the houses of York and Lancaster would lead the most turbulent era in English history. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for Henry V. You can follow us on Twitter at Pod. And on Facebook, the Kings and Queens podcast. You can also email in any questions that you have to the Kings and Queens podcast at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening.